The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. All right, welcome to the Chronic Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Ralph Albrook. We are joined by Andrew Peach in the middle of the week, and we have a very special guest tonight, a man who personally destroyed the Dallas Cowboys on a Sunday night in 2006, three touchdowns. Longtime NFL fullback Mike Carney, former Saint, former Ram. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you doing? Hey, great, great to be with you guys. How are you guys doing? Uh, pretty good. It's been a it's been a pretty normal off season for the Saints. You know, we don't we don't as Andrew will tell you. Last year we did all these off season podcasts, and every week it was bounty gate, bounty gate, bounty gate. So it's actually not. <laughs> which, <laughs> which guy is it? Who, who's getting suspended next? Who's it, getting fined? <laughs> it, it was. It was. Andrew will tell you. Yeah. We, we mapped out the off season schedule, and Andrew called me up one day. He's like, "Dude, that calendar's out. It's just bounty gate all the time." And, uh, oh, I know. It's it, amazing what a year a year can year difference makes. It is for an organization. It, it is, and we'll get we'll get in all yeah. that. But the, which brings up an interesting point about safety. And I'll start with Andrew. Andrew, they they did the helm they did the new helmet rule for running backs where you can't lower your helmet. And Mike, I want to get into specifics for you because you played. But Andrew, uh-huh. my worry is that the referees are they going to call this like they call. The pass and the 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 defenseless receiver, where it's if in doubt, throw the flag, and we're going to see a lot more flags than they say we're going to see because of this new rule with the running backs. Well, I think, and I'm sure Mike can can speak to this more than I could, but I think you know, players do have some influence over the course of the game with the referees, and you know, there, there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of interpretation, and so. I really think there's going to be players are going to, especially the offensive players, are really going to lobby hard to not have flags thrown for. And and I mean, it's just natural when you're carrying the football and you're bracing yourself for a blow. And we're talking about linebackers that run four fives that weigh 260 pounds and they're, and they're going, coming at you full speed. There's no way that you can't brace yourself for that blow, and that's going to include lowering the helmet. So. You know, then it becomes a game of interpreting between lowering your head with the crown of the helmet and ramming into a player versus, you know, lowering your helmet but not leading with the crown. And, I mean, that, there's such a fine line there. It, it's going to be impossible for the refs to get it right, even 50% of the time. I mean, it, it's just – it's going to be a crapshoot. I have no idea how they're going to be able to um, – to do this, but I do think over time, if, if if the flag's getting thrown a lot, it's just going to make teams more scared to run, and it's going to turn the league into an even more of a passing fest. So I, I just we're already becoming a pass-heavy league where teams are, are starting to throw the ball way more than they're running it, and um, I I think this rule could only make that worse. Mike, as a as a player, when you think back to your career and either when you carry the ball or when you're blocking for other running backs. How often do you think, man, that you know what that happened a lot? They're gonna, they're gonna. Do you think they're gonna throw a lot of flags, or eh, it's not gonna be that big a deal? 
Oh gosh, man, <laughs> this helmet. This that's a great question, but let me just say this: this helmet ruling is absurd. It's the, it's the most terrible rule, uh, new rule that they have in the game of football at, at, at every level. I mean, because you know, we all know that it all starts at the top and works its way down. You're eventually going to see college and high school and and in middle school and pee wee football uh, probably come up with the same deal. Listen, every play, guys, a running back. A fullback lowers their head to protect himself. A receiver, a tight end catching the ball in the middle. I don't understand. I'm with Andrew. I don't know how they're going to call this thing. Is this going to be a thing where the judgment call, uh, or is it going to be a thing where Art Show and his crew are going to be watching, you know, these games after Sunday and Monday morning and going through the games and figuring out what guys lowered their crown of their helmet, what guys didn't. I mean, it's going to be out of control. Yeah. You're going to have guys being fined who shouldn't be fined. You're going to have guys, you know, flags being thrown for a 15-yard penalty that shouldn't shouldn't have been a 15-yard penalty. I don't get it. I think the one thing that stands out to me, guys, is that this is when this ruling was 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 brought to the table, and obviously it was a ruling that was uh, passed uh, by the competition committee. The first thing that came to my mind was hmm, owners and commissioner are protecting themselves. Litigation. Yeah. This is a ruling that's that's basically showing the public and all, on the three thousand or five thousand, whatever the numbers at now. I don't know. It's, it's so it's so out of it's so the numbers crazy. I think it's more yeah. like around five thousand lawsuits due to this concussion issue. Basically, it's showing those attorneys and all the insurance companies and everybody else that hey, listen, we're trying to protect the players. We're protecting the head. And a great example of what they're talking about is, I think it was opening day, Trent Richardson of the yeah. Cleveland Browns running over the safety from Philadelphia Eagles. That's been done for years. <laughs> you couldn't have seen a better way for a running back to run the football and to deliver a blow. That, that's the only way you can deliver a blow. It's so different than a player, a, a, a defender, coming into the pile or coming in to make his hit, the hit and using the crown as helmet. That's considered spearing. That's not that's not the same thing when a runner's trying to protect himself. You you put your head down. It's a way of protecting yourself against defenders coming to like you, like you said, Andrew. Defenders coming full speed that are running four fours, four twos, four threes, DBs, uh, safeties, linebackers. That's the only way you can do it. I just every time I caught a ball on the flat or ran a quick dive play, my head was always down. My eyes were up. I mean, I could see where I was well, going. Well, here's that he, my helmet. The head was used as, as as a way of defending myself and and not allowing myself to get injured. If I if I don't have my head somewhat down to deliver a blow, then I'm exposing the lower half of my body, my knees, my waist. I'm you know injury. You're going to see some running backs this year potentially have more injuries and more players on the offensive side of the ball because they're not able to lower their head. If you lower your shoulders, you have to lower your head. Yeah, and so what? I just don't get this thing. I think for me, guys, it, it it really comes down to just smoke and mirrors. It's just showing the public, it's showing everybody out there, especially this these lawsuits. That hey, we're protecting the players, and really at the end of the day, I think it's making the game worse. Well, Mike, I agree. The, the one thing with the, the the concussion lawsuits, the, the NFL is definitely afraid of that, and also, you know, as Saints fans and media, we have our issues with Goodell, but. When I read a profile on him and I and I read that he's petrified of a player dying on the field, I believe that to a certain extent. 
And I just wonder if there's really – football is what it is. It's a, it's a violent game, and I just don't know if these rules – what – they what's the what's the end point where you add a rule here and you add a rule here and you add a rule here and suddenly it's not football and people go this is it we've got an amex platinum pro on our hands ladies and gentlemen we haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the centurion lounge (sighs) is he connecting to complimentary wi-fi oh my look at that he is and you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Eh, I'm not really going to watch it. I mean, obviously we're not at that point yet, but... It's getting there. You know. (laughs) I mean, we're not not too far off, guys. I mean, this is being a a situation where the game can't be micromanaged anymore than what what it's already been done. I mean, mean, listen, I think Mike Dicka said a while back, if you want to take the head out of the game, bring back little helmets, take the face masks off, and you'll see guys not put their head in there no more. I mean, there's no way you can't play football the way it's supposed to be played, as violent as it is, with, with wearing the helmets that we're wearing today, that these guys are wearing. It's, it's not possible for these guys to do it. It's, it's complete, the natural way of playing the game. And so, you know, I think we're all in agreement here. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not trying to add any more to no. it, but the fact of the matter is that this is something that's going to be more of a problem than I think um, – you know, a way of, 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 of not being a problem. Well, it's just going to be strange because what you're going to have, Andrew, possibly, is you're going to have a guy, I could see it maybe on like a short yardage play or something where a guy breaks through, and obviously they said they're not going to call it if you lower your head near the line, but if he breaks through and it's him in the safety, he balls over the safety, it's a 60-yard touchdown, and the ref's calling it back for the crown of the helmet. I think <laughs> – it's possible you could see that in some spots, and that's sort of a Andrew. I don't know how to say maybe a different kind of penalty from what we've seen, or maybe maybe it's it's no different than them calling a touchdown back on any other penalty. But it's something we're not used to, and I think there'll be some outcries if that sort of if, if it if this penalty swings a game, it'll be inter- Andrew. It'll be interesting the media reaction. I think it, there's a real chance for fans and for um, players, I mean, everybody, to really get pissed off. If something, if plays start to really affect the outcome of a game, and, and look, these these plays aren't going to happen, I, I think, if these flags get thrown frequently, it's not going to be plays behind the line of scrimmage. It's not going to be on a two-yard run. 
it's going to be in the open field when a running back has a clear shot at a corner or safety, and and he, you know, and it's in the open field where the refs can see clearly, and and you know, so at this point you're talking about a 15 yard run, a 10 yard run, maybe a 30 yard run downfield, and those are the plays that are going to get 15 yard flags and get called back, and so uh, not only does it affect the game, but I think it potentially affects explosive plays, and. When you're, I think what's, what's at biggest risk is the big running plays. And, you know, as Mike, I'm sure Mike will tell you there's nothing sexier than a team lining up and just getting a four-yard run because, you know, they're, they're controlling the line of scrimmage. And, and there's, there's people out there that love that. But for the average fan, the, the average fan is dumber than guys like us and they don't follow the game like we do. And they want to see 10-yard runs. They want to see 15-yard runs. That's what they think is sexy. And I think that play is more in jeopardy than anything else. It's on the same rule. Mike, before we get to the free agency moves and specific teams, because I want your opinion on that, um, you played for Steve Spagnola. And me and <laughs> oh Andrew. Oh well, me and Andrew were talking about it before. You know, Steve Spagnola, he went from the hottest coordinator, he helped the Giants win a Super Bowl, to coach in St. Louis. His first year in St. Louis, he won in 15. But his second year in 2010, if y'all go to Seattle and win that season finale, you win the division and you host a playoff game. He went from that to the next year going 2-14, and 14, being fired, to being hired by the Saints, to being fired twice in less than a year. What, in your estimation, happened to him, he was he was the up and coming coach. Well, I'll say this to you guys: not every coordinator out there is meant to be a head coach. Some coordinators are just meant to be coordinators. And in my experience with Steve Spagnuolo, and I think the one year, obviously the defensive players in, in New Orleans found out the same thing. You got a guy that knows the game, knows knows the scheme that he runs, maybe doesn't believe in it as well as he knows it, and doesn't have faith enough in the coaches he has teaching it and in the players he has to execute it. And that's the problem with Steve Stagnolo. He constantly second-guesses himself. He micromanages everything. He's worrying about uh, a certain technique that doesn't really ha- uh, factor into the to the to the scheme that they're running. Uh, you know, he he's uh, constantly outthinks himself. And unfortunately, look, guys, players. You know, we all have a start. We all have an end. Right? You, you talk about guys all the time. They man, when he, in his time, this guy was one heck of a player. You know, but he's old now, you know, and he's lost this, he's lost that. Well, guess what, guys? Coaches have the same problem. Some coaches start out hot, and some coaches end up losing their edge with coaching. I'll say this about Steve Stadnoli. If he wants to get back in the league and coach, whether it's a position coach or a coordinator, I don't think he'll ever be a head coach again. Uh, he just—I he, think—he showed everybody that he just can't handle uh, being in control of the entire ship. He needs to go back to the drawing board and figure out really what his core values are as a coach, and really what he sees himself doing, whether it's being a position coach or running a defense. Because 
he's lost that. You know, he's lost it like a, a running back's lost his step, okay? Uh, he's lost it like, you know, uh, you can talk about many, many other players of what they've lost, you know, a step or they just don't, they're not as, not as productive. He, he just, he, he lost it. He lost his control to coach and to execute and call the plays and to put his players in position to be successful. That's a, that's a coach's job. Well, it's the coach's job to put players in position to be successful. If you put players in to be in position to be successful and they don't be and they're not and they, and, and they fail, it's on the player. But if you don't, if you constantly put players in position to not be successful and calling that wrong schemes and, and wrong calls on, on and you know that and the players know that, then the coach has got to go. And I think over time, Mike, how do we know that as, as fans when we're watching the game as as outsiders? How, how do you identify that? How do you know when it's on the players and they're just not executing it versus it's on the coach because he's not giving the players a chance to, to perform? Well, obviously, you look at this past year and New Orleans Saints defense, what, the worst defense in history? Indeed. That overall total defense, is that correct? Yep, that is correct. Okay. Correct. So he, Steve Spagnuolo never found a way to stop the bleeding in any of the games. In my, in the games I watched, okay, I never saw him stop the bleeding. Now he had he had some games, but the majority of the games, guys, he couldn't stop the bleeding. He constantly put guys out to dry. Okay, you saw guys getting beat all the time. You saw guys wide open. You saw guys, you know, third and mid, you know, medium, the third and the long converting. These are things that, that that great defensive coordinators and great defenses like the Saints had that that took them to the Super Bowl. They don't allow. They don't do. And that's what I'm talking about. When you see a player that you know who, okay, the Saints defense, we saw what they were in 09. We saw how great they yeah. were. Okay, you have those same players minus what, Darren Sharper and a couple other guys maybe? But the core of that defense is still there. And for them to go from where they were to the, to the, to be, the, to the, be the, the, the worst in the league, in the history of the national football, the total defense, that's not always on the players, guys. Well, that's, here, that's on the coaching, and that's that's on that's on Steve Spagnuolo and the fact that he doesn't do a good job of putting players in position to be successful. And you saw it time and time again. The defense started out okay. They, they started out awful, and they continued to be the worst. Okay, it wasn't like they started out awful and got better each 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 uh, game along the season. You know, they got considerably worse each game, and by the end of the year, you're going. You know, we 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 can't continue to have this guy here. We got to move on. Yeah, and which the thing, so no, you're you're exactly right. And that brings me to another point: is that with Spagnola, you never felt like I never felt like as a fan watching the Saints. Sometimes, especially on offense with the Saints, you could feel like, man, they're playing this week. They are totally ready to go, and they're they're out coaching them. And sure, the other team may adjust or whatever, but you never felt like you. I never felt like on defense where, like, the Saints, you were like, man, they got a good plan. They're stopping them, and the adjustments may come. So, Mike, you you, you played for Hasley. You played for Spagnuolo. You played for Sean Payton. What makes a great coach besides great players? And and the different coaches for that you played for, when did you realize, oh, that guy, he's he's different. This guy... He really knows what he's doing. What sets them apart on game day during well, the week that are specific things that you that make them great? 
it's constantly keeping guys motivated. You know, it's, it's understanding the fine line uh, with your players, understanding when to motivate, when to discipline, when to pat you on the back. Um, Jim Hazlitt was a guy that could motivate, but he did too much pat on the back, you know, and, and not enough discipline. You know, then you bring in a guy like Sean Payton, who who was in the beginning <laughs> very disciplinary, you know, a disciplinarian, and really walked a really strong, fine line. But he found ways to motivate you. And I think he probably, at the end of the day, had the best mixture, you know, because you got to be able to motivate at, at the at the at the the, the in the National Football League, which is the, the we all know, the tip of the spear. You've got to find ways way to motivate guys week in and week out. It's a long season. And he, he found ways to constantly do that. We know that he's really, you know, I think it, it, it speaks for itself. He brought a Super Bowl championship to New Orleans. Um, so you got to be able to know that fine line. Uh, it's not be a player's coach, but it's also not to be, um, you, know, uh, 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 you know, a guy like uh, – you know, I don't know how, who else I could refer him to, but like all the old ways of uh, Bear Bryant, where it's just like constantly, you know, beating on guys and not taking care of guys. That's uh, probably a bad example, but you know, you got to have that fine line. Well, and Mike, Don understands that, and and Steve Spagnuolo, um, he didn't have any of that as, well, a, as a head coach. Well, he was not a guy that. Had the qualities of, of a true head coach. He didn't. He didn't yeah. understand what it took to get guys motivated to play. And yeah. you know, he was too worried about what guys were were doing off the field or doing after practice or what you know, not having their shirt tucked in or what the janitor looked like or what the equipment manager was saying. You know, you can't worry about certain things. You have to. Worry. All, we all know it. All only matters in those white lines. Well, here's the thing. And here's it's the th- about getting guys. It's about getting grown men. You know, the tip of the spear to play great football week in and week out. Well, and, Mike, you talk you know, about that's the, that's the goal. You talk about motivation, and I think one of the interesting things that I learned when I covered sports teams, and that fans always say, "Oh, why do they have to be motivated? They're making millions of dollars. You know, they should they should be motivated to play. I'd be motivated to play every week." And I always try to relate. You know, you look at it as it's an honor to play, and yes, it is. Players in the locker room, they look at it as a job. And yes, some of them are just like it at any job. Some people are self-motivated and don't need to be prodded. But other players do. Explain that to where some players need a kick in the pants or need motivation or, and, and some players don't. And it's a, it's a, it's, I wouldn't say a chore, but it's a, it's a challenge each week for coaches to get a team Ready to play? It it really is. I, I you know I, you know I I used to get that a lot. You know, hey, you're making money, you're a lot of money, and you know, what do you mean you got to get you know get ready to play? You should be able to play. No, you know, I mean, but I never had that problem. You know, I, I think the majority of, of guys in the National Football League are are intrinsically motivated. Okay, if, if you're not there, um, you know, you, you got there just on pure talent. But the majority of the guys that I came across that I played with against. You're intrinsically motivated now, but you still look to play for for something. The coach still needs to find ways to get you hungry for that opponent. Maybe you're playing an opponent then you know that's not as good, and you shouldn't play down to the level. You got to play. You got to continue to play to the level that the coach the expectations and expectations you have for yourself. That's important. 
it's important to continue to, to be productive. If you're not productive, guess what? You're gone. So there's motivation every week to play uh, hard from a team standpoint, from an individual standpoint. And that's the one thing, like you said, I think it's a misconception in, uh, in the public eye that, you know, fans don't realize that, you know, guys, and then you have, you know, these guys out there who don't, don't know how to get up for a game, don't know how to prepare for an opponent. You know, they need guys to kind of a coach to show them or a veteran player to show them. So it's a week-in and week-out deal. And it, a coach has to come in with a new message every week, you know, yeah. a new thing every week to focus on for that particular game. Obviously, with whatever goals you have in mind for the, for the end, at the end of the year, you want to achieve those. Those are always in the rear, always in the, in the forefront. But you always got to have a message ready to go each and, each and every week. And, uh, that's a coach's job, especially the National Football League. Your, your job is to lead men, grown men, at the at the, the best in the world. You know, playing the National Football League, you still have to find ways to do that. Yeah, yeah, and to piggyback on what Mike just said, I think as fans, you also need to realize that, you know, when when your team is two and five, and you just had a costly fumble in a game, which cost your team, and the fans are are down on you and and you've got a hurt ankle and you know you're starting to think to yourself you know i mean these demons go go in everybody's head you know is it really worth it you know why am i out there busting my ass for for all these fans that are that are totally turning on me now now that i fumbled it's not like i did this on purpose and you know my ankle's really hurting me and i'm i'm jeopardizing my health i'm risking my long-term productivity um you know should i be playing right now and so you know, I, there, there's that mentality that creeps into any bad team. I think it's easy to be motivated when you're winning and things are going well. When you're losing and people around you are down on you and, and you're injured, and those are things that can creep into your head. And so I think when you lack motivation, those are examples of things that can happen. And um, that, that, in my opinion, is when the best coaches really show themselves. And if you looked at that season where the Saints started 0-4, and uh, Mike, I think you were on that team. Um, Sean, I mean, they ended up the season seven and nine, um, but Sean Payton was able to kind of rally the troops and and find ways. Um, and and you know, to, to some extent, the Saints did that again this year. They started zero and four again. They end seven and nine, and Sean Payton wasn't there. But I think you've got to at least credit the guys in the locker room for. And, and you know, I think Drew Brees is, is, is certainly part of the fabric there. And he deserves a lot of credit for that too. And, and you know, as a leader, he he kept the guys motivated. He he kept the guys playing every single week. And and I can't tell you how many times in my years of fanhood of watching football, I have seen teams that are three and eight just mail it in. And if they go to, down two touchdowns in the first half, that game is over. Those guys are quitting. And because they're like, yeah, sure, we're playing for our paychecks and our job. But other than that, do I really want to get injured? Do I want to risk injury and cost myself next season? Or if I'm in a contract year, be injured before the off season? So, um, you know, those are things to weigh too. And, and you know, motivation, the, the good coaches are, are, are the guys that get those players to play in situations like that especially. Well, Mike, I want to bring up I, – I, it was all in the news yesterday and today about the Rutgers coach. They they – didn't fire him yesterday, but they fired him today. And me and Andrew were talking about it before the show. And look, I never played any sports. Andrew played tennis in college and high school, and I think football too. When does motivation, as a guy who's played sports his whole life, 
Mike, when does motivation from a coach, when does it, when does that cross that line of it's motivation, it's tough, it's, it's instilling toughness and discipline and all the good things in sports. When does it cross that line to abuse or not good enough and it's not appropriate? Where is, where is that line? Oh, I think you, I think we all saw the video. I think yeah. we all know what that line is. I mean, a coach's job is never to physically put their hand on the, on his players. A coach's job is not job is not to belittle, uh, is not to um, uh, embarrass you. That's not a coach's job. Um, there's a big difference between motivation and destruction. And this guy at Rutgers was was, was pure destruction. Um, appalled. I think everybody. I think I think everybody knows what. I hope. One thing that really upset me is that if I was a player on that team and, and he was doing that to me or one of my teammates, I don't know, someone is going to be physically harmed and it's not going to be me no more or my teammates. It's going to be his coach because what he was doing, guys, had crossed it over the line for anybody. It had, I mean, I've never yeah. seen anything like that before. And yeah. I've never experienced anything like that at any level, at any age in my entire life. I've never, I've never seen anything like that. That was it was disgusting to watch that video. And um it's it's obviously I think it's been long overdue. This guy's been doing it for what, three years? I think the next guy that needs to be fired is the A D. I mean, he needs to go too. Um, he's a guy that obviously knew about this for some time and, you know, decided to handle I mean, you know, handle it within their own and nothing ever changed. So right. listen, they cross the line. You don't, you don't motivate. I haven't seen one. I, how do you motivate guys like that? You don't. Yeah, Mike, you how hard, guys, away. guys don't want to play for you. How hard is it? Do you think for, for college kids, especially, you know, you're young, you've come from high school and you, you sort of have that respect the coach. Don't make waves. How much of that is where, you know, like you said, if you're NFL, NFL players, professional players, guys that are older, you know, you're not going to put up with that. But how much do you think of it? Think of the the players not fighting back and not saying, "Whoa, stop that!" Is they're 18, 19, 20 years old, and they just don't not necessarily don't have the courage, but don't have the knowledge and the experience to sort of be able to deal with, for better lack of word, a tyrant. Listen, guys, 18-, 19-year-old kids, 20-year-old kids, it's no different than having a 5-, 6-, 7-year-old, 10-year-old kid, okay? You know right from wrong, Yeah. right? These, these guys knew that what he was doing was wrong, okay? So the fact of the matter is, to me, in my opinion, these kids never came out and said anything or never complained to anybody about it. I mean, I think there's, there's been reports that some guys have, like, five guys have transferred in the last year or whatever. Uh, obviously, probably we know now why they transferred. Um, but you know right from wrong. So my my thing is is if I was a player on that team knowing that was happening the time that I was there and you don't you don't do anything about it that tells me that there's a there's an infrastructure problem you you don't feel like you can go to to someone else you know to the AD or someone that can make a decision or find out or do something about it so there's some there's some 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 players that were scared to say something about it because they're afraid about they're afraid of losing their scholarship. You know what I mean? They're afraid of coming out and saying, you know, maybe thinking, hey, this, you know, maybe I shouldn't bring this to light. And when they should, 
you know right from wrong. I knew right from wrong when I was in college. I knew when a coach, you know, said something when it was right or wrong or when he crossed the line. Well, so I think that it was beyond the coach. It was beyond this head coach. It was beyond the player. I think that, I think it was a, a threat of, of being scared of what might happen if they did say anything about it. So um, I, I, I hope they don't think that that was the norm. That's the way it should be. That's definitely nothing any, anybody's ever seen before. Andrew, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting, Mike. And I, Andrew, the, Mike brought up fear, and how much do you think with coaches? How much of it is a player's experience? To, like Mike says, you have you have to know right and wrong, but how much do we not know about it? To where maybe the coach was not just abusing them in practice, but putting fear into them. And and I hate for you to speculate, but I just have to feel like if he's crazy enough to be throwing balls at him in practice and doing all that, what's to say he's not telling him, look, you've got no power. Go to the AD. Go to wherever. Nothing's going to happen to you. Nothing's going to happen to me. How much do you think that could have played a part in it? Uh, you never know. I mean, I think with um, with physical abuse like that, generally uh, becomes mental abuse as well. So I mean, I you know they they're not you know separate from each other. So I, I definitely think he was in these kids' heads. Um, but you know, I, I was excited when you told me you were going to ask Mike about this because it's funny when you told me that the first thing I thought of is if I know anything about Mike Carney, and you know, obviously <laughs> I, I, I didn't know him when he was 18, but. If some guy is heaving a ball at Mike Carney's head, he's he's probably not living to see another day. So that 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 was a, that was the big thing that that surprised me is, and I mean, look, I'm not I'm not a tough guy, and and I, I didn't play I played tennis in college, but it, it, you know, if someone were to launch a ball at my head, if someone were to kick me, you know, a coach or whatever, I would retaliate. I would absolutely, and, and that might not be the smartest thing to do, and obviously none of those kids did, but. I am surprised that as much as he towed that line of, of daring them to, to do something about it, that no one hit him in the face. And so that, that that's almost what's most shocking to me. Um, and, yep. and so there, there's obviously I something going on there. His, 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 he's got a mental um, power. He's got something over these kids beyond just what he's doing. Um, he, he's obviously in their head because no one they're, they're just taking it. They're, they're literally just taking it. And so that, that's probably, for me, the saddest thing is that he's not only manipulating them physically but, but mentally. Um, and, you, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, honestly, Ralph, I'm probably the most tolerant person, like, when it comes to coach outbursts. And I, I firmly believe that coaching, um, every individual responds differently to coaching. And you have to learn. That I think the good coaches are not the one-trick ponies. And, I think is amazing, you know, you look at Greg Williams, who was the Saints defensive coordinator, as amazing of a motivator as he was. And he's a rah, rah, rah guy, and he's, he's a guy that just teaches players to play physical, to play with passion, and he's one of the best in the game at that. But he's a little bit of a one-trick pony. You know, he's got the same routine for every player, and we saw from Scott Fujita's comments that not everyone responds to it the same way. You know, a guy like Fujita – um, didn't necessarily agree with Greg Williams' teaching methods, whereas a guy like Roman Harper 
says it's the, the greatest coach he ever played for. Obviously, he responds to that very well because he's a physical player and he he likes to get near the line of scrimmage and hit people. So, uh, but so I think the best coaches are the ones that identify the, what a player is going to respond best to. Okay, this guy, he, he's kind of he, he's de- he's defensive. So I don't want to push him too hard. I want to encourage him and I want to be positive. Other players, I need to treat them more poorly, let's say, and, and, and really push them hard and, and be hard on them and, and encourage them to to do better because at the end of the day, if I don't get in this guy's grill and, and, and show him some fire, you know, the Greg Williams style, then he's not going to play with passion. Then there's other – so, you know, I think the best coaches read what a player responds best to and then they they use that to try to get the most out of their potential. Um, obviously, this coach at Rutgers is a one-trick pony, but I think we kind of identified where the line is drawn is um, physical assault. And, you know, it's funny. I think about Sean Payton on the sidelines with Jamal Brown. <laughs> I mean, granted, it's a professional football player and a guy six times his size, but I'll never forget him kind of shoving Brown and poking him in the chest. And, you know, that, that that's definitely telling the line, you know, and, and – Brown looks so mad in his face. I really thought he was going to stop Peyton. Um, but, you know, that, that that kind of brings that whole question, was Peyton out of line? Does he kind of say that, that? That's pretty close to me. That's not an 18-year-old kid, and it's a guy that can defend himself. Um, but I think Peyton, in that instance, is still kind of towing that line, maybe in a positive way, and kind of how I talked about Jamal Brown needed that to really get him fired up and perform in a better way. Mike, what's the angriest you ever got at a coach during practice <laughs> or a game? Well, I, I kind of want to say one more piece to Andrew, <laughs> what Andrew was saying. Hey, listen, guys, if, 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 if you think you need to do what that guy was doing to help motivate or like what Greg Williams did to a certain guy, you probably shouldn't have that guy on your team. You probably shouldn't recruit him. You probably shouldn't have given him a scholarship. You probably shouldn't have drafted him. You probably shouldn't have signed him. So that, that to me, is the thing where you, where a coach is, um, and this is a totally different, somewhat different than Greg Williams with this guy. This guy was just pure destruction. There was nothing that was good coming out of what he was doing. But for me, how I responded to guys and coaches throughout my entire life, if you yelled and screamed at me and talked down to me, I never heard a word you said. I just turn, 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 you know, turn my, turn my cheek, walk the other way, because that's not how you got, that's not how you got me to, to get motivated, and how, how you got me to get your, you know, whatever you were trying to teach me across. Now, coaches yelled. I have no problem with coaches that yelled, but there had to be. What are you yelling about? Are you yelling about the fact that I'm not playing to my potential, or I did something wrong for the second time? Hey, yell at me all you want, but if you're just yelling to yell, and there's a lot of coaches out there, guys. Hey, anybody can go out there and be a coach. I can give a hat and a whistle to anybody out on the street and say, hey, go yell at this kid. Anybody can yell. But what's the message behind it? Mm-hmm. And and I had a problem with a guy, I think it was a fun coach I had a problem with. He was a coach for the Saints. He was our running backs coach for, what, 06, 07, for two years. His name was George Henshaw. I remember our first mini camp with Sean Payton. He... We hadn't really learned the playbook. We hadn't even learned what techniques and routes we were supposed to run. And here we are in the first minicamp, guys, running one-on-one routes versus linebackers. And I remember George said, hey, Mike, I want you to get this big, big, thick West Virginian accent. Hey, Mike, I want you to run a, a choice route. And I go, okay, so I'm thinking choice route, you know, old, old regime. We haven't really 
talking about a choice route with this with this new staff and how you want to run it. They all want to release outside the of the garbage can here, get on top of the linebacker, break either way. Well, no. When I released outside, I started hearing every f ball and mother f and this, and you know I was supposed to release through the line of scrimmage. Man, I tell you what, guys, I got up and ran my route and I broke out. And the ball hit me in the head because I was so feared I could hear him yelling at me. And I beelined right to George. And I said, George, if you talk to me like that again, there's going to be a problem. You don't need to yell and scream and belittle and cuss when I haven't learned one thing that you have have, decided, have even told us about running this route. I said, you know, once I got in his face and started telling him, listen, we don't do that here. You don't, this, you know, you've been coaching national football, you know better than talking to players like that. You know, it's one thing you're talking to a rookie, but more so crossing that line. But here I was as an established second-year player going my third year. Hey, listen, I'm here to help you, coach. You know, and before the end of the day, you know, he apologized to me. But the one thing I told him was, hey, George, why don't you go apologize to all these these scouts over here? And how about Nikki Loomis over here? How about tell them why you're apologizing? Because you just made me look really bad in front of those guys, <laughs> you know. And, you know, I, I always had a problem with that. I always had a problem when coaches did that. Because to me, there's so much, there's so many better ways. And then sometimes in the heat of the moment, like you guys mentioned that Jamal Brown and Sean Payton uh, exchange, hey, sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. And I think what Sean did to Jamal, which Andrew, you mentioned, that's, that's, that's as far as it goes. You know what I mean? That's where you get that. that that's right to the point. And, and that got to Jamal. That, that really ticked him off. And he ended up playing better. But not everybody responds to that type of coaching. You know, um, it, it's a double-edged sword, man. You, you can do it, but you got to be careful on how you do it. And obviously you talk about so, this guy. So Mike, let me ask you I don't, I don't right. think he had any idea what he was doing. Mike, let me ask you this. In that situation with Jamal Brown and Sean Payton, was Sean Payton being judicious, and did he pick the right moment to utilize that technique on the right player, or was he just lucky that he he decided to let his emotions get the best of him, and it just happened that it, it benefited him? Uh, I, I didn't agree with it when it happened. I thought it was Bush League, you know, because, I, I mean, it depends on who you ask. You ask me, I'm a guy that don't believe in that. I don't believe that you do that. I don't, I don't believe you call people out like that. Um, Jamal was a Jamal was a guy that you didn't need him to do that to. Jamal knew when things was wrong. That's the one thing, guys. You talk about players in National Football League. You don't need to tell them more than once. You know what I mean? I got it, coach. I, I'll get it. You know what I mean? If I mess it up, hey, most, most of the time, a lot of these guys already know why they messed up. So why are you going to point me out and call me out? Is that because you want to let everybody know that you're a coach and you're taking care of a situation? To me, that's a little bit of ego uh, more so that that happened then. And, and somewhat, hey, man, everyone's watching. If the cameras are on the sideline right during games, hey, Sean Payton, you after a player. You know what I mean? But I didn't agree with it, but that, that's that's Sean Payton. That's, that's, you know, hey, who can complain about the guy? The guy's a Super Bowl champion head coach, you know. Um, obviously, his techniques and things that he's done have, have worked. But for that particular moment, in that, in, in, in that period of time, I didn't agree with it. And I wouldn't have liked it myself. I probably would have said something too. I remember he did the same thing to Jeremy Shockey in 2008 when we were playing in Carolina. And Jeremy Shockey catches the tight end screen and looks behind. Julius Pepper strips him and fumbles the ball on our sideline. And Sean Payton did the same thing that he, was, he did to Jamal Brown. And, and, and Jeremy Shockey, we all know how crazy Jeremy Shockey is. <laughs> <laughs> that dude barked right back at him, and you could see the tail between Sean Payton's legs and walked the other way. 
So it was funny. When guys barked back at Sean Payton, you didn't see him. His bite wasn't very big. And I always, that always stood in my mind, man. He, 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 he knew what guys would do it to, but he tried to do it to Jeremy Shockey. That was the wrong dude to do that to. And, you know, we all know Jeremy Shockey, how crazy he is in his ways. And, you know, and I love the guy, but and that was kind of, for me, a kind of, I, I kind of chuckled after that. I was like, oh, man, give him some of his own medicine. And you saw, really, the technique that he used on Jamal didn't work with the guy. You know what I mean? So you saw both sides of it. You saw him doing the Jamal, Jamal not liking it, but responding to it. And you saw Jeremy Shaga saying, I ain't have any of that. Don't even come to me with that crap. You know, so that was that was kind of funny. But, you know, that's that's sometimes, you know, how it goes. Yeah, do you think, I mean, for players to, to do that and, and to be able to, to uh to confront a coach or, or, like you say, bark back at him, how much of that is just a player that has a natural self-confidence, and how much of it is a, how much of it is that, or how much of it is a player that's been in the NFL like Jeremy Shockey five, six years, or <laughs> you when you did it, to where you say, you know what, I've been in this league a while, I'm not petrified anymore, I'm not overwhelmed. Yeah, it, you know what, I think it has to do with you know who it is and. And uh, um, who can get away with it? <laughs> I mean, Jeremy Shockey could get away with it. Him and Sean Payton have, have, a, have a huge history. Obviously, he brought him to New York. Um, you know, I, I couldn't say that um, someone else would have did that to him. <laughs> that player would have still been on the team. Yeah. You know, it was Jeremy Shockey doing it to him. So, you know, you, you got to be careful. Uh, mine was with my position coach. You know, and that mm-hmm. was more of a respect factor. And I didn't. I felt like he was on the line and being and 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 how, and how he was talking to me as a man more so than as a coach to a player. Does that makes sense. And so, you know, it, it all depends. But um, you know, when the head man barks at you, typically, you know, you're not going to say much to him. And uh, you know, Sean Payton, whenever he barked at me, man, I just, hey, that's some that that's his meaning. That's what he does. And, and sometimes less is more, you know what I mean? And not saying anything and just kind of taking it. Sometimes that, that just makes the problem just go away, you know what I mean? But if you're going to sit there and complain or yell back, um, you know, I, I couldn't have done what Jeremy did because <laughs> that's just Jeremy. You know, I think Sean always expected that of, of, of that type of personality. But, um, you know, and I think it all, again, it all depends on who it is and who can get away with it and, and, and really what's, um, you know, uh, how, how is it being communicated to you, and how you feel? How are you? How are you accepting it? If you don't like it, you know, uh, depending on upon who it is, how you handle it, and yeah. and deliver your message to them is is you're going to live with it or or regret it. Yeah. So. The the interesting thing, Mike, I want to me and Andrew want to touch on from some the free agency stuff going on in the NFL before we let you go. But there's one question I want to ask you that as a fullback and as a guy who that. Your position to me as the NFL, as it goes to quote-unquote safety to protect the players, as it goes and tilts the league towards more passing, is your position kind of dying off to where there are less and less guys that are in your mold of that true lead fullback um, position? Is, is, is the fullback position dying out? Yeah, Yeah, it really is. You know, I think that, um, you know, you look at maybe San Fran, you look at Baltimore, and you look at probably New Orleans. Um, you know, I, I can't really think of anybody else who's really running a guy. 
And, you know, I think that the college game isn't running a fullback no more. The college game is all spread and five wide and this pistol. And I, I don't I, I don't know about you guys, but I never thought the pistol would ever be ran in the National Football League. And, 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 it's, and it's being done. So it's working. And so when you got teams and offenses like that working, and these tight ends, guys, aren't like the tight ends of, of, of you know, 10, 20 years ago. These tight ends are freaking small receivers. You know, they're so athletic, and you can do so much more with them. The game has changed, mm-hmm. you know. And the position, uh, the fullback position, you know, I, I don't see it ever coming back. I really don't. I don't see it. Um, you know, it's some, sometimes some things are these, I think things are coming trends and, you know, you know, it's kind of found its way to come back or leave and then come back again. And I don't see that happening. I really don't. And that's the evolution of the, the spread and the option and the read offense and the pistol and, and, and that it's working in the National Football League. You know, did I just, is it, is it my imagination or did, did I see Pat White just sign? <laughs> he did. With he the did. He I mean, he, football was, football he, was out of the, he was he was out of the league and what, part of the concussion lawsuit. And now he's back in the league. Hmm. We all know, guys, this is a copycat league, right? Yeah. You know, and so teams are seeing that this thing works. Whatever Cam Newton was doing, he's doing, and Colin Kaepernick is doing. You know, uh, Russell, Russell Wilson in Seattle, what he's able to do, uh, RG3, guess what? Everyone's looking for another one of those type of guys. You may not get, you may not get that caliber of a guy, but you get, might get a guy that can do a lot of those same things. It adds a whole new dimension to your playbook on offense. And, if you see other teams being successful, why not us? Well, Andrew, the thing that, you know, Pete Prisco, the writer for CBS Sportsline, he, he says, you know, the pistol, it's not here to stay, and it's, you know, you can't run it all the time. But to me, I think Mike might be right in that, yes, you can't run the pistol 100% of the time like they do in college. No. But I think there's a place where Seattle and San Francisco and these different teams, they can run it. 20% of the time, 30% of mm-hmm. the time, maybe even have a pitch count on, say, Russell Wilson. Hey, Russell Wilson, we're only going to run you 30 times a year. But if you divide that out times 16 games, that's, you know, you could run them three, four times a game. And, and I don't think it's going in, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. I think all these old NFL guys, yeah. these writers, I think they're wrong. I think, Andrew, I think it's here to stay. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I still think the one factor that we're not thinking about with this is the quarterbacks that are running these. And these quarterbacks, the, the style of quarterback that runs this effectively is the most vulnerable player on a 53-man roster in the open field, other than a kicker and a punter. And, um, you know, you look at Russell Wilson, and, and, you know, I'm not talking bad about these guys. I'm not saying they're not tough players. They're, they're probably tougher than most quarterbacks out there. But the reality is when Ray Lewis finally catches up to a guy like Colin Kaepernick or uh, Patrick Willis finally catches up to a guy like Russell Wilson in the open field and they get a clear shot at them. Um, and, and we saw with RG3, I mean, we saw what happened to RG3 already. You're looking at these young quarterbacks that are explosive, that are making these plays. Eventually we're going to get a rash of injuries from these guys being in the open field and you know, to their credit, they've done a good job of being smart, getting out of bounds, avoiding the big hits, but they're putting themselves at much bigger risk than your Tom Brady's and your Aaron Rodgers and your Drew Brees. And I just don't think it's as sustainable for these teams because if those guys go down, the next guy behind – Rex Grossman isn't running. 
Okay, if something happens to RG3, Rex Grossman isn't going behind center and, and running the wildcat or, you know, or the, the spread all of a sudden. So my point is a couple of these guys, and we've already seen with RG3, and say what you will about how quickly he's recovering, but he gets one more blow to his knee like that, and he, he's a rookie, guys. I mean, this will be his second year in the NFL. He, he may not last four years in the league if he gets another injury like that. And, you know, Colin Kaepernick and Russell Wilson, the same deal. You know, a, a serious injury like that, Seattle and San Fran go from playoff teams to 6-10 and 10 real fast. And, you know, Drew Brees can get injured too. You know, look, I mean, Tom Brady broke his leg or, or tore up his knee with that one injury. We all remember that. Um, but I just think the drawback casters that get rid of the ball quickly enough that they're not taking those kind of hits or have more longevity. And I think the NFL will back away. The teams, the GMs will back away from making big investments in the guys like Russell Wilson, guys, guys like Colin Kaepernick, when they see them start to go down with injuries. And we've already seen it with RG3, and we're, I, I, I really do think we're going to see it more. Well, but why, know, why, 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 why go out and make big investments when you can go grab Pat White off the street for, <laughs> for something, right? Well, Mike, that's, that was going to – you know, I was going to bring up a point. <laughs> Who else can we go out and look at that, uh, that, that that we can grab that they've got Pat White that can do a little bit of what RG3 and those guys do? Well, that was going to be, Mike, that was going to be my next question to you. Of all these free agency moves, why do these teams feel the need to recycle bad quarterbacks? Haven't teams seen enough oh, of man. Carson because Palmer or, or Cobb? I mean, why did the he – there's, there's no one in the draft. But but Mike, at least you know? at, at least in a draft, I can say Geno Smith or the kid. Oh, Geno Smith is, is is overhyped, and and I don't think he's going to be anywhere near what people think he's going to be. If you watch what he was doing in that pinstripe bowl game, whatever the heck it was called <laughs> against Syracuse, the guy was awful. And I know the weather was terrible, but I mean, there's no one in the draft. Matt Barkley, way way too much risk there to think about any type of reward. High high risk with him and, and, and the fact that, uh, you know, what he showed this past year, uh, you know, and uh, what he can, can and can't do. And Carson Palmer still in the league. I mean, that's, I'm just like, this guy, when is someone just going to say, okay, we're passing on him too, but you can't guys. Yeah. You can't. There's, you know, the NFL we know is backed by the NFL draft. This time last year, was anybody looking at recycling anybody? Not really. Maybe David Garrard, but he didn't last long in, in, in Miami. Once they signed Ryan Tannehill or drafted Ryan Tannehill, there's no one there. So I think that's the reason why you're seeing some of these guys, you know, either still floating around or coming back into the league because there's, there's not much of a, uh, you know, of, of a good pick from the, the college ranks or even from free agency. If you but Pat White's going to be different. Pat White is going to be different. <laughs> Pat White's going to be different. Pat White is going to be selling me insurance on my house in November. But Mike, so what you're you're saying the quarterbacks for 2013 are so bad, you would rather have a semi- No, I'm not saying that at all, man. All right, I'm going to stop you before you even say it. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I think teams are willing to just go the route of experience or just what's out there than, than let ahead, go ahead and go out and draft the guys that they don't can't yeah. see coming and get the job done right away. I don't, I don't see Matt Barkley coming in and starting right. You don't see Matt Barkley coming in and doing what RG3 did. Or yeah. I'm not talking about the type of plays now. I'm talking about success. 
you don't see a Matt Barkley coming in and doing what Andrew Luck did or RG3 did or Russell Wilson did, did you? I can't see it. I can't no. see – Matt Barkley needs to be behind a guy. He needs to come in and learn. Uh, I think that uh, Geno Smith, same thing. He doesn't have the maturity or the wherewithal or any of that type of – I mean, you read anything about the guy, it, to me there's nothing really positive about the guy. Um, he looks good in his workouts, but that's about it. But, I mean, there's nothing there for guys – for, for front office people, GMs, and, and people who are doing all the research and evaluations that make them feel really warm and fuzzy inside about this about this draft of quarterbacks. So why not go out and get a guy that at least has already done it, or whether it's Pat Wyatt or Carson Palmer or, hell, John Skelton. Let's go grab John Skelton. I mean, the guy's won some games at least in the National Football League. You know, so there's better there's there's guys like that that have NFL taste, let, you know, let alone the college state that you're just going to take a risk on, 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 on taking. Well, who's it? Who's... Uh, Ralph, Ralph, I Go think ahead, uh, Mike, Mike is kind of confirming my fear. And, you know, the Saints pick 15th, and we know the Saints aren't going to draft the quarterback. So um, my, my biggest wish about this draft was that teams would go quarterback happy between 1 and 14 because that drops a quality player further down the rung to give the Saints more options at, at pick 15. And so – I was thinking, man, let Geno Smith go number four and let, let Mike Barkley go number nine and, and let, let some of these guys Gino, draft the highest so keep drafting quality players. But I, as we've seen, all, these, all the teams kind of kick it around for all these bets, like Kevin Cobb and Carson Palmer yeah. aren't worth anything. That, that yeah. proves to me that there's not going to be a lot of quarterbacks drafted high, unfortunately. I'll be, I'll be, I'll be surprised if one goes ahead of the Saints. Andrew, I will be flat out stunned if there's two quarterbacks picked at the seats. I just don't, I just don't see it in any way. I hope it's, I hope it happens, but I just don't see it. Mike, before we let you go, give me one move in free agency that a team made that you said I love that move, and give me a move that you were like, what are they doing? What? What? You can't say Pat White. You can't say Pat White. He doesn't count. I mean a real, I mean a real free. No, not the Pat that's White true. thing. The Pat, White, the, the the Pat White thing was more of a joke. I think <laughs> we all know that. I, I think the team that really made the biggest splash, in my opinion, was Seattle Seahawks. Percy Harvin adding another huge weapon to Russell Wilson and his arsenal up there. Cliff Averill on defense, uh, who is Michael Bennett from Tampa Bay. I mean, they've really signed some guys that have really established them to be another contender this year. I really liked what they did. Um, I don't know, guys. I think out there, I mean, teams have to spend 99% of their cap. I think the Danny Amendola thing is surprising for me to go to New England. Um, I was a teammate with Danny for, for two years. He's a great player. But he's missed 20 games in the last two years. And you're going to go ahead and give him five years, $31 million, I think 10 or $12 million guaranteed. That, to me, was, was puzzling. Uh, and how you don't uh, find a way to get Wes Walker to stay there for Tom Brady. Um, that to me was was a, was a huge shocker. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd say those are my two two off, off the top of my head. And Mike, final question before I let you get out of here. I know you are a big hunter, uh, and my hunting days are just uh, failures and misses and disappointment. What's your best hunting story you can tell us? Hunting story. I don't know. Are you? Are you uh, I, I don't think I've. I've never gone. I mean, I got big. I got uh, 
I got my Wii big game, uh, big big game hunter, whatever it's called. <laughs> I, I hunt, I hunt a lot on that. I haven't. You, you, you're, you know what? We have to flip the script on this and say, you know, what, what is your hunting, hunting story? Because I, have, is, I haven't hunted a day in my life. <laughs> I thought. See, I must be mistaken. I, I, I must have got. I must have had you confused with another person with Kenny Wilkerson that he set up yeah. with, with duck blinds and. Oh, that you know what that probably was? That was probably Rodney Leslie. It probably was. Remember Rodney Leslie yeah. defensive tackle? Yeah. UCLA. Yeah, that yeah. was probably who who he referred to. Yeah. I remember Rodney we had, we had always out. talking yeah, about no, going out hunting. Going out the window. But yeah. uh, so I apologize, but you know I love <laughs> I love big game hunter on my Wii. I play that all the time. <laughs> my hunting story is I was in the blind. I shot at the deer. The deer looked up at me peed while I got ready to do another shot. I missed again and then it left. That's how bad I that's how that's how bad I was at it. So I was like, no, it's I, not I I'd pee too but I knew I was about to be <laughs> killed and eat you know, either mounted or eaten yeah. <laughs> for dinner. So I was like, no, no, this this is this is this isn't for me. I uh not I not yeah. only am I non athletic, I I'm I'm a bad shot as well. But Mike, thanks for giving us way more time than we had originally planned and uh good luck. Do you have any uh websites or some people where people can get in touch with you or things you're doing yes. that you should know I, about? Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on anytime, guys. You always know that Andrew, anytime you guys need me to come on, I'm more happy to help you guys out. Uh, I have MikeCarney.com coming up here in the next week or two. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to be focusing on uh, broadcasting and, and also uh, public speaking. So um, i got a website, my personal website going up. And then I'm um, sure, you know, I'm on Twitter at Carney44. So anybody who wants to ask me a question about Saints, Rams, whoever, NFL news, notes, whatever, uh, I'd be more than happy to answer your questions or give you my thoughts. You may or may not like that today. But that's okay. So, but that, those are ways you can get a hold of me or, or find out what I'm doing. All right, no, thank you for, for Mike Carney for, and Andrew Duke. I'm Ralph Mulder. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.